Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. It seems like these days there's a lot of people out there defending and even promoting pornography as harmless adult entertainment. That's something that consenting adults do and it's not that big a deal. Some even say that it actually can help you spice up or enhance your sex life. Well, our guest today has some very strong feelings to the contrary when it comes to pornography. We've had her on the podcast before and we're just really grateful that she came back to talk about the impact of pornography on couples. And in fact, if you listened to the previous episode with Wendy Maltz, you heard her talk a little bit about her experience as a sex therapist being trained in the 70s and practicing in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And all those years, especially in the first couple decades of her practice, she said she was pretty neutral about pornography. In fact, and sometimes even promoted it and thought it would be something that'd be really healthy and great for couples who struggled with sexual dysfunction. But then she started to realize the impact and the damage it was having on these couples that she was working with. And she changed her tune. And then she actually wrote a book about it with her husband called The Porn Trap. And she's been criticized inside the field, outside the field, but she's also been praised by so many people who have seen the direct impact of her work on their own lives. I'm certainly one of those people. I've had her book for a lot of years. I've shared it with so many couples and it's made a huge difference in the lives of the people that have followed her counsel and not only stood up for themselves and their relationships and gotten rid of pornography in their relationships, but also it's really made a huge difference in terms of them healing and learning how to rebuild intimacy and connection in the aftermath of pornography. We brought Wendy back on the podcast to talk about her journey from being promoting it and then being neutral about it and then ultimately being against it and recognizing the impact it was having on people and the damage it was doing. So Wendy Maltz is an internationally recognized sex therapist, author, and speaker. She has more than 40 years of experience helping individuals and couples overcome sex and intimacy concerns. She's the author of numerous acclaimed sexuality resources, including the recovery classic, The Sexual Healing Journey, A Guide for Survivors of Sexual Abuse. And in our previous episode, by the way, I'll just say we talked about healing from sexual abuse, and it's a fantastic episode and highly recommend it. She also authored, as I said, The Porn Trap, The Essential Guide to Overcoming Problems Caused by Pornography. And she's also got a fantastic website, healthysex.com, which provides free articles, podcast interviews, posters, videos, and so many great resources to help people overcome sexual problems and develop skills for love-based sexual intimacy. So we're going to jump right into our interview with Wendy Maltz. Welcome back, Wendy. It's so good to have you back on the podcast. So nice to be here, Jeff and Jody. Oh, yeah. We're thrilled to have you again. 
Yeah. So one thing we love about your story is that you have this unique background in terms of you know treating pornography issues. It hasn't always been that way. It hasn't been something one that you saw much of in your practice. You know when you started practicing forty plus years ago, but also it wasn't even something that you even had big concerns about forty plus years ago. And I know you've written extensively on this on your website, and we'll link to that in the the show notes here. But I would love for you to introduce to our audience just your journey of you kind of coming in contact with pornography as a young person, and then just what it's meant to you personally and professionally up until this point now. Yes. Well, I think everybody has a story about their relationship with porn. And uh, I grew up in the, I was born in 1950. So I grew up in the 60s. And there was a lot of stuff coming out with sexuality then in terms of television shows and movies and music, um, you know, sexual healing with Marvin Gaye. And, and sex was a big topic when I went to college in the late 60s and early 70s and mid 70s. And I w- had some exposure to porn, but I had exposure to what people call grandpa's porn, which is now I might be moving into great grandpa's <laughs> porn. I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, there was the the novels that I, uh, that girlfriends and I found in their parents' bedside drawers and things like this, and Playboy magazines and Playboy came, started in, in around the time I was born in 1950. And mm-hmm. so, it had a big influence because that was the first time you could kind of get porn commercially. Before that, you had to, it came in brown paper packages sent through mm-hmm. the mail. There weren't videos. Black market. In the bla- a black market for it, right. And yeah. there were, it was seen as obscenity. And uh, there were a lot of rules and regulations around its use. So it was a, a controlled substance, so to speak. But as I went, as you know, we move up in time historically from the 60s to the 70s, you have the introduction of videos of, we used to have video stores, remember, and you could go and you had a little one corner of the store, at least here in Oregon, had a curtain and you can actually go back and get the pornographic videos there. And and behind the green door, you know, titles like that, Debbie Does Dallas stuff. And so, you know, that it was sort of seen as this fun new entertainment that we could finally get access to. And it always seemed like it was kind of a strange world. The people in it looked kind of seedy or whatever, you know. But when my husband and I started dating in the 1970s, you know, we'd go, we were in Berkeley, California, and we'd go over to Oakland and go to a rental, I mean, a, a, a theater there. The Mitchell Brothers theaters were popular there, and they showed hardcore porn. And, you know, that was sort of like this incredible kind of exciting taboo kind of treat to look at it. And there again, I thought, God, where do they get these people? And, you know, and this is strange. And what, what a strange, you know, it seemed unusual, but I didn't see it as something that could actually be harmful to people, could mm-hmm. actually hurt people. That didn't 
And then in the 70s, late 70s and early 80s, I got trained as a uh, counselor. I got a degree, a master's degree as a clinical social worker, and I got training in sex therapy and became a, became a certified sex therapist and then later a, a diplomat of sex therapy, which is the higher, um, one of the higher uh, distinctions. And and there again, you know, in the field, it was sort of seen as something you could recommend to couples to spice up their sex life. And I had a, a lot of uh, background in terms of the women's movement and wanting equality between the sexes. And it always rubbed me the wrong way. And, and my husband, Larry, too, that there wasn't, you know, it just seemed like a world that was um, also there were, it was at the expense of some people. Yeah. We knew yeah. that a lot of the performers, as the study started showing, have backgrounds in, as being sexually abused and were on drugs. And they were doing it kind of as a last resort way to make money. And the people, you know, there was a lot of fake smiling that went on. And a lot, it just looked like a lot of people down on their luck who were doing doing something that, you know, like they seemed associated, like mm -hmm. not connected yeah. to each other, not connected to themselves. So that bothered me. So that, you know, as a feminist or someone who cared about women's rights and, and all, it just seemed like it was going in the wrong direction. And there were books out then, Men Against Porn. There were books on the dangers of pornography, but those mm. were all overlooked in the field. And I think it was kind of embraced by the sex therapy field in some yeah. many ways. And like, I remember going to sex therapy conferences where they had porn stars as speakers, you know, and porn stars were coming out with videos on how to, you know, do oral sex or, you know, they, they were like, mm -hmm. just because they had been in a porn video, they were like considered experts on sex. And it's like, well... Maybe on dissociated sex and on <laughs> exploitive sex and commercial wow. sex, but can this really be what uh, you know couples can get help from? Now there were some good videos that were being made, a series that helped educate couples, and they were pretty explicit. They had people nude and and doing different lovemaking techniques, but those seemed were different, and those were done by professional people who were trained in the field and educated and using the best uh, references and knowledge base. So, but that, those weren't commercial products like were starting to be made. And, but it wasn't until the internet came and that I started hearing in my practice, I started practicing in the early, late seventies and early eighties. And I went into private practice and and it, but it it wasn't until like the mid 90s when people could do the downloading on a computer of pornography and then later in 2000 when the internet hit and you had these devices that you could go in real time you could see things and even participate through uh sex chats or things like that it was just like a whole new world all of a sudden, pornography became accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week with no limits. And all there, there used to be like 
restrictions in early pornography in the 70s against things like defecating or vomiting or implications of child uh, adult pornography, those all somehow went poof, you know, disappeared. Now, I remember there being an initial discussions about that pornography website should all have .xxx after mm-hmm. them. Right. Yeah, instead I remember of .com or whatever. And that would have made a big difference in helping to keep pornography, keep our young people, you know, protected from the influence until they were adults at least and could choose to go to these sites. But instead, you got an industry formed where there was a lot of free stuff in order to lure people in. And once it got people in, uh, the studies show, and you can see charts on this, it channels you towards the expensive stuff. You know, of course, mm-hmm. it's like those people who call on the phone to see if you want to buy something. They know that 100 people are going to say no, but, you know, one or two are going to say yes. And that's what they're banking on. So they make the 100 calls. Well, you get all this ton of free pornography in order to get you hooked into the paid stuff. And even if you never go to the paid stuff, it's had an influence on your sexuality. So. All of a sudden, I, we, like Larry is a therapist too, and I mean, we're both retired now, but you know, we both around 2000, in the early 2000s, we started getting people coming into the practice saying and th- that they were having problems caused by porn. They're, they were finding out that a partner was using it a lot, and they decided to break off the engagement and not get married because they were worried about the influence it might have if they had children together. Or people were saying, "I'm help me, I can't stop using this stuff. I've tried it and, and it's not, I can't stop on my own. And, you know, so there were divorces. Oh, just all these stories, you know, people whose parents died and or a father died or a grandfather died, and then they go through their belongings, you know, and they find these stashes of just really, you know, disgusting kinds of pornography that just changed the whole view they had of their family member. So, you know, and partners of people who were into porn who were just in so much pain, feeling that um, they, their whole sexual relationship had been usurped and hijacked by pornography and they couldn't trust. They felt betrayed Mm -hmm. and they couldn't trust the partner anymore. And so we looked around for resources to help people and we couldn't find them. I know you wrote a really good one a little later, you know, I love you, hate the porn. But the, uh, we did research for The Porn Trap, The Essential Guide to Overcoming Problems Caused by Pornography, that we eventually published in 2008. And it was, I think, pretty groundbreaking. Yes. When, did, when did yours come out, Jeff? 2010. 2010. Uh-huh. So we paved the way for you, right? No. Yes. Oh, <laughs> no doubt about it. <laughs> I mean, there were a few books on porn addiction that that did come before, but really yeah. something that was a recovery book that individuals or couples could use. It was kind of new and we wanted a lot of, half of it is based on a recovery and exercises and interventions you can do 
to actually heal and get better, not just laying out the problem. So, um, you know, we a lot of the later years of my practice, I uh, retired five or six years ago, you know, was spent treating a lot of couples and individuals with pornography problems of one type or another. And I think I was just, and Larry and I dropped using it uh, really when we started having children and it just didn't seem compatible to go out and get a porn video, you know, or have porn um, uh, around with raising children. And we didn't use it that much anyway, like I said, and we, and it, it felt we were ambivalent about it anyway. And neither of us developed a habit or an interest in it that was strong. And, you know, like I said, it was more like this sort of novelty thing. And the more I worked with survivors of sexual abuse, and, you know, the book, The Sexual Healing Journey, we talked about that in the last podcast I did with you. You know, there were too many crossovers with sexual abuse and pornography. People as objects, Mm -hmm. you know, your worth is only in, in terms of what you can do to arouse another person or, you know, be exploited sexually. And the devaluing of uh, anything having to do with love or caring, respect, even consent. You know, there's a lot of sexual violence in porn. There are underage people or underage looking people. And it just seemed like it was too much of a breeding ground for potential perpetrators and and for reinforcing that rape mindset. I can do anything I want to you. And I'm in control. I can, you know, I can mm-hmm. I can find whoever I want on the internet to look at to masturbate to. You know, it's just it's just that kind of way of seeing people as less than human. Mm-hmm. And so that was very bothersome. But uh and now, you know, young people can get it on their phones anytime they want. It's mm-hmm. it, There's no way of stopping it. I think even when our book came out, there was still a little maybe hope it could be restricted in some way. And now I think the view is you can't stop your child from looking at it. They're going to be heavily exposed and look at, you know, and, and the most you can do is just educate them about what, the porn industry is, what porn's about, and how it can interfere with some things they may want to experience in life, like a real healthy, intimate relationship, and good self-esteem, good mental health, good sexual health, deep sexual pleasure, you know, a sense of being in control of your own sexuality. And then, you know, like we do in terms of drug use, you can't stop them from having, you know, access to drugs, but you can educate them about the dangers, not in some heavy duty fear, shame way, because that always backfires. But in uh, I care about you. And here's the true information about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And you're a smart guy or a smart gal. And, you know, you need to figure this out for yourself, because you're going to have a lot of influence trying to move you in this one direction. And it's going to be up to you to hold steady if you want. And if you don't hold steady to get help, if you feel like you're drowning and uh, that, you know, parents have to do a a different kind of focus to protect their kids than thinking of banning 
porn, you know. I mean, right. it's good, good to do some controls on the internet, especially for really young kids. But once the teenage years hit and the hormones hit, it's a whole nother story. So yeah, so, you know, I did a lot of, I think it's, a, it's an, you can tell in my voice, it's an area I find kind of a sad area in uh, the in society and, and even in some ways in the field, then in sex therapy field and sexuality field, they really were coming from a place where they didn't want a lot of restrictions on sex or shame. And that's good. You know, we don't want people to be shamed and we don't want to heavily control people's who wants their sexuality heavily controlled. But there seemed to be a blind spot in terms of a number of people in the field being able to accept the fact that pornography was actually a commercial product that could Mm -hmm. harm sexuality and that was having that effect. And so I think you still see that, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things about pornography, it sort of celebrates intense sexual passion and interaction. And it says, sex is okay. And that was a message that a lot of, you know, people in the field wanted to convey. But I think a lot of what makes sex okay is when it can affirm a person's mental health and their relationships that they want. And in the long run, make them feel better about themselves and more in charge of their own sexuality than less. So, you know, it's it's just some it's just a, uh, something there. And I think now in the field, they recognize uh, that people can have compulsive interests in pornography. They don't like the word sex addiction, although people who have uh, problems with porn. They use that term all the time. I, don't I know. Get, have you noticed that in your practice? It's like, it Absolutely. seems like, you know, it's professionals who have the hardest time with the term <laughs> uh, porn addiction. I but know. people who are suffering in it or sexual addiction, you know, who are out of control with their sexual behavior and they, they crave it, they can't stop, they can't stop in spite of negative consequences. They're the first to say, hey, you know, this is like drugs. You know, and and, and people I saw who had like come out of hardcore drug problems with um, methamphetamine or heroin, even marijuana, compulsive marijuana use or heavy marijuana use. They they said, hey, getting off of porn feels like uh, or, or cigarettes. It feels just as hard, if not harder. And. So as I, I, I was trained as a drug and alcohol counselor in my early years, and it's like, I'm still talking to addicts here, you know, <laughs> when yeah. it comes to porn, a lot of people have it, I have, have that issue. And, you know, you can kind of tell if you have a problem with something, if you try and stop and you can't, you keep right. going back yeah. to it. Yeah. And one of the things with pornography is it kind of grabs a person's sexual interests and desires and it shapes them towards it and so getting off of porn can feel like you have to give up sex or you have to give up masturbation 
or you know self pleasuring or you ha- you know it has these these connotations that you know don't take away my sex life and uh, or I don't I don't want to give up my sex life because it's almost it becomes almost impossible to imagine sex without some type of pornographic imagery or porn or acting out something seen in porn something that is connected to porn and that's one of the big challenges in recovery is yes. you know recognizing you have to if you really want out you're going to have to kind of create your sex life from the bottom up again you know and and learn some new approaches and of uh explore some new dimensions with uh you know about sex and sexual pleasure and um so that's the challenge to create a new approach to sex new ideas of what sex is and its meaning and what it feels like and how to get really turned on and really intensely passionate without it yeah it's so interesting because people really in a lot of ways when when porn is being used you're totally cut off from how you feel how somebody else feels like there's really no data there you're just sort of like like you said it's like shaping you it's kind of taking you for a ride and there's very little if any vulnerability required or any sort of personal insight or uh, awareness of others or compassion or anything going on mm-hmm. and so so when you stop porn and have to like wake up to a real human <laughs> that can be so overwhelming. Yeah, and a ton of work. Yeah. And a ton of work. And, right. Yeah. And um, yeah, people, I think one of the things, there's like an exercise in the porn trap called, I want to be someone who, and it's it's just kind of a checklist. And there's all these different things, you know, I want to be someone who can express love through sex, or I want to be someone who is sensitive to my partner's needs, or I want to be someone who feels in control of his or her sexuality. And, you know, you can, you can go down there and we came up with a whole number of things, but you can add to the list yourself. And then if you go down there and you check off things that you want to be, you know, or you, that you want to move towards or, or be more of then, and you look at, okay, now, how might continuing to use porn impact that? And yeah. you start to realize, you know, I can't have both. I used to think of a lot, this would come up when I was working with porn user, heavy porn users. It would be like, I'd come home and say, they want their cake and eat it too. You know, it's like, <laughs> it was this sort of thing, like they want to keep the porn, they're miserable and they want to keep the porn and they want the important connection with another person or to be a good father or to be a good role model or whatever. And it's like, you know, there are therapists who've called this the two choice dilemma. Have you heard of that? I think it was mm-hmm. David Schnarch, maybe, who identified that mm-hmm. term. But it's essentially you have two choices in life and you realize that you can only pick one, but you want your cake and eat it too. You want both, you know? So it's like, this is a really hard thing to grasp that you can only pick one because the other one, the other thing interferes with, you know, the other. So you're going to have to pick one. 
mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, and um, it's so hard. And it's usually not until people get to a breaking or it's often sometimes not until people get to a horrible, uh, you know, right. hit bottom right. and miserable thing where their partner says, you know, it is me or the porn. I'm out of here. Or, yeah. you know, or yeah. I'm out of here. And and if you want me back, you're going to have to, you know, really change your life and get rid of the porn. But uh, and that's, you know, hopefully people can deal with this before it gets to that kind of ultimate thing and see what's happening in their lives. But it's the two choices. You only have one way to go. This concludes the first part of our two-part interview with Wendy Maltz. Thanks so much for listening. If you want additional resources, you can go to fromcrisistoconnection.com where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, online courses, and other resources. As always, it's great to have you here every single week. Stay tuned for the next episode where we will complete our interview with Wendy Maltz. Thank you.